I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome, everybody, to I Was There Too. This is the podcast where I, Matt Gorley, talk to people who were there in the great scenes of cinema history. Today, it's part three, the final chapter of a Spielberg series from Poltergeist to Raiders of the Lost Ark to today's feature film, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. God, this movie made me cry as a child and a teenager and an adult a week or two ago when I watched it. The story of a boy... And a little thin-necked, big-eyed guy with the saggy chest who can get real pale when he's sick and lies in a river. My guest today is Sean Fry, who plays Steve, one of Elliot's brother's friends that goes on the big bicycle chase across the moon towards the end of the movie, but also there throughout. He had some great insight on all of the scenes from this film, as well as what it was like to work with Henry Thomas and E.T., Edgar Timmons. A lot of people don't even know that's his real name. This film is a little different for Spielberg in that he never storyboarded it. He kind of shot more emotionally with this film. Usually he was working on set pieces and action sequences that had a particular geography that they had to frame up in storyboards and that sort of thing. But this one was not only shot without storyboards, but for the most part it was shot in sequence. So a lot of the emotion could kind of build naturally, which is rare for a film, especially these days. It's also kind of unique in that it doesn't really have an antagonist. I know that the government men in the chem suits are kind of the looming threat, but really... Even they aren't an antagonist. The antagonist is Reese's Pieces. Actually, no M&M's, because I think they turned down the request to use M&M's, and they were like, forget it, we'll use Reese's Pieces. But there was the future potential for an antagonist, because there was a nine-page pitch document for a sequel to this film called E.T. Nocturnal Fears, sounds like I'm making this up, where an E.T. ship of carnivore E.T.s led by an evil E.T. named Zrek comes to town and causes havoc, and it was supposed to be a little bit more scary. It's really worth Googling. It's bonkers. God, I do love this movie, even if it's just staring at the Star Wars toys in the background. And that's one of the ways, at least I'm going to say thematically, that it's linked to Poltergeist, because there's all sorts of Star Wars toys in the background of that, and Raiders, because Harrison Ford is essentially a Star Wars toy at this point. But let's go ahead and get started. There isn't much more to say. Except stay tuned after the interview for uh, a little Hollywood rundown and some of my least favorite things in films, as well as some particulars having to do with the music of this film and much, much more. I don't know if there is anything more. That may, that may have said all there was to say. Let's get started. Kick it, me. The film. E.T. the Extraterrestrial. The year. 1982. The role. Steve. The actor. Sean Fry. All right, Sean Fry, I'm going to start with a strange E.T. question here. You have a unique perspective on this film. So we all know E.T. is one of the most, like, full-of-life, 
magical characters in cinema history. But I would imagine between takes, E.T. just shuts down and goes lifeless. What was it like to see him between takes just sitting there kind of dead? Well, actually, considering that we were all, you know, fairly young, around the same age, um, it was really playtime in between takes. I mean, Stephen was very serious about filmmaking, and he wanted, you know, everybody available and ready to work. But, you know, like I said, we were all about, I would say, roughly 14. I turned 15 on the set. The other kids were 14. And then, like we discussed, I think uh, Henry was roughly nine. Which is about how old I was when this film came yes, out. So it really yes, resonated. Yeah. Yes. And I was only two. So, <laughs> so I'm much younger. You no, are. <laughs> no, it was a very old looking too. Yeah, no, there was, um, I remember in particular, there was one um, very, very long uh, close up of him being shot um, in front of the ship. And um, so that was one memorable moment that I had to just sort of stand aside and watch the work. Um, because they have, as you probably know, they had a mime doing all the handwork and then they must have had close to a dozen folks who were working the hydraulics. So one person would be in charge of the left eye, one, the right, one, the mouth, one, the nose, and just slowly moving those hydraulics (laughs) to get him to turn and raise an eyebrow. And that was really fascinating to watch, especially considering nowadays that's unheard of. Yeah. yeah. It's just so, so easy to do without all that. Yeah. I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but Mm -hmm. like the rest of the world knows E.T. as this, the screen version of him, you know him as this behind the scenes contraption. Right. When you saw the final film, were you surprised or were you like, no, that's pretty much what I thought it was going to be. That's pretty much what I thought it would be. I mean, you know, when you blend the story together and it's all edited and it's, you know, beautiful on the screen and you're enjoying it, I mean, that's different, Uh obviously, to see it all put together and flow so nicely. And uh, we shot in sequence, so it was... It was nice to see. but I heard that. Now, did Spielberg do that to kind of help with the emotional flow of the film? Yeah. I mean, there may have been moments when, you know, stuff was shot out of sequence. But for the most part, it was uh, it was in sequence. Wow. And I don't know what his reasons for doing that were. I would imagine, like you said, the buildup of the emotion. Yeah. And then the tumultuous, uh, you know, invading of the black suits or the white suits <laughs> right. in yeah. this case. Yeah. And so it just got more and more emotional. And That's a rare luxury these days yeah. especially. Yeah, yeah it is because jumping back and forth between mindsets is sometimes proves a little bit more difficult than to just flow with the – flow of the story yeah now let's talk about steve your Mm -hmm. character steve um Mm -hmm. what i take away from this film is that you're the leader of the gang you're the game master basically the dungeon master when you guys are playing your role-playing game also when you're escaping on the bicycles it's your idea let's split up yes was it was it the plan that steve was calling the shots or was that just just sort of came through in the editing or no that was really I mean, it wasn't Hitchcockian in that in that he storyboarded the entire thing, and once that was done, you know, it was done. It was very intentional, um, very religious to the script, mm-hmm. um, which is great because Melissa Matheson, rest in peace, um, was a phenomenal writer and was on the set and with us every moment. Oh, really? Yeah. So he was very faithful to her script and um, very, very, if any, improvising. I mean, when we're at the table, obviously, yeah. you know, he just gives us the gist of the game and the pizza and all that. Yeah. So a lot of that, little things were improvised, but... Not much on the script and not much in the dialogue, no. I'm glad you bring that up because there is a line in that game that I have to ask you about because it's – you guys are playing this game. This is early in the film and then it cuts to Elliot out in the shed basically meeting E.T. And then we cut Mm -hmm. back to you 
the next cutback starts with this line. Uh, so I think it's character of Greg saying, all you can get are those 40-year-olds. And I'm wondering what the hell the context of that is. Do you have any idea or remember? No. Who, yeah. who, who said it? Is Greg the character with the headphones? I believe yes. Yeah. The, with the yeah. Yeah. And he so was it comes kind of loud mouth yes. at the table, and yeah. it comes right back, and he just goes, "All you can get are those forty-year-olds," and I'm just talking. Well, is that a, like a woman reference? You know, <laughs> I've got to watch that again. I never. I mean, I'm sure I'll pick up on it when yeah. I watch the scene, but I never. I wonder if it was the tail end of an I, improv thread that they just cut in on or something. Yeah, uh, or I can't imagine him saying that to. To the mother, um, yeah, I know it didn't seem that <laughs> way. Although you know, yeah, they got a lot away with a lot more back in the eighties with those type of things. You yeah, know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, penis breath. That's and, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that was as bad as it got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How funny! Um, and one more line I want to talk to you about before we get into some other things too mm-hmm. is this: is a, this line is a bit of controversy because. People don't know what it means and that is when uh, everybody's at the bus stop and you and your gang of people are talking to Henry Thomas, this character, and you say zero charisma and someone says sine supremus. Do you remember that at all and what I it do means? and I don't know whether it was – it wasn't a Dungeons and Dragons term. OK. Because – and I can tell you about that. Um, in a bit, but we were precluded from using anything Dungeons and Dragons. I see. So my guess is that it was made up uh, to sound like a Dungeons and Dragons term. That makes sense. That's why you're the game master, not the dungeon master. Right. And it was, uh, what was it, Sintus Supremus? Well, Sintus Supremus, so I think it's spelled strangely in the and I've only just researched this. I don't know any of this myself, right, but right. Um, I think it's S I N E space supremus. So the Latin of that is basically like big nothing or, you know, something like, I think it's just really? an insult or something. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're going back. He He's saying, don't do that. And he's sin supremus. And then Henry says something and yeah. he says sin supremus back. Yeah. And some people think it's sinus supremus, which would be kind of like loosely translated to big nose. Right. So there's all these strange internet theories on these. And I didn't even mean to get the, to this this soon, but to d- dive this deeply in. But anyway, it seems like you've cleared it up a little bit. And I think if I'm not mistaken, that was the first scene that I shot. Oh. Of course – they had been shooting a little bit because by that time, yeah. you know, a lot had happened. And how did you end up in this film? What was your audition process like? Um, well, none of us really, and I'm sure you've heard this before, none of us really had any idea that it was going to be as big as it was. Uh-huh. So the audition process was, you know, fairly straightforward. Um, obviously it was Steven Spielberg. So that was something to be excited about. Although he really wasn't, well, he did close encounters. So he was, he was fairly big by that, by that time in Jaws, of course. So that was exciting. Um, but the rest of it, um, there was, you know, a number of kids waiting to go in and, uh, slowly got whittled down, but not, not to the point where, Ooh, it's only five of us now. It's going to be, you know, um, they still had plenty of kids. And what it was is that they had us in a room with Stephen in a row of chairs, um, like two and two and two, like a bus. And I think that the scenario was we were flying in a spaceship or we were driving the van, but I seem to recall, I mean, it was so many years ago, but I seem to recall just... And you were two. Yeah, and I was two, so how would I know, really? <laughs> it's not very clear to me. Um, but uh, something like that. We were flying or we were driving, um, and he would feed us, you know, you're going to the moon or, or you know, stuff... Yeah. stuff um, to sort of interject some imagination into the scene. And I was sort of an alternative type guy. I, you know, I was kind of punk 
I came from school, straight from school, so I was, I mean, I wasn't, you know, black flag punk, but, <laughs> but you know, a pretty alternative kid, so. Clash punk, not. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay. exactly like that. And so in, in retrospect, uh, I've thought many times, my God, you know, you would think they would go with, you know, very conventional looking kids or suburban looking, uh-huh. but apparently not apparently didn't put them off well there's something about the quirkiness of you the four older boys that kind of works too and i was wondering how much of your own personal character and style at the time influenced steve's wardrobe in particular because you go from kind of wearing like a bowling shirt you're kind of like a retro cool bowling thing right and then before long you're wearing a turtleneck and english cap Blazer yes. and some sleek red sunglasses. Yeah. Did you have any input in that? No, I had absolutely no input in that. It, it ended up working out great, but at the time I loathed the wardrobe. Really? Oh, interesting. Um, well, because I was a very skinny kid, yeah. and so I was co- sort of self-conscious running around in a you know in a bowling shirt. Right. It's not the most flattering thing for a skinny. <laughs> Never has been. Yeah. Old. Well, yeah, you're right. I don't think, I don't think it ever has been. But and then the um, turtleneck and the that gabardine shirt with the cap and glasses, I. I, at the time, I just really didn't understand where they were coming from. <laughs> Very nice wardrobe folks, but I just, it's just not something I guess that I would ever wear. So it was a little awkward. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I didn't know too many kids that dressed like a, an old English bank robber. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, it I somehow works though. It's, yeah, it's strange. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. There's a method to the madness, I guess. <laughs> And what about shooting the flying bike scenes? What was that like? Well, that was interesting. I um, was not a big bike rider. So in the first scene, again, one of these first scenes, um, I don't know, this was maybe the third or fourth scene I had shot. uh, We were doing a run of the bikes behind a row of houses that were under construction. And he basically just gave us the cue to start riding the bikes. Mind you, I had not ridden a bike probably since I was, I don't know, 12 years old Uh or 10 years old. Uh, That's not that much younger, but still, I was never a very good bike rider. We'll discard the old adage that doing anything is like riding a bike. It's not not necessarily, because I spent some time apart from a bike, too, and when I went back to it, it's not as simple as the old saying goes. No, no, and funny enough, um, when they had us start to ride, everybody just immediately stood up on their bikes and started really... (laughs) you know, rough riding. And I sat on the bike and just sort of roll, you know, rolled along. And, uh, he made a comment about riding the bike like his grandmother or something. <laughs> Spielberg like that. did? Yeah, he did. <laughs> so, I mean, not in a mean yeah, way, yeah. just sort of in a, in a playful way. And, um, so I had to, I mean, obviously I couldn't ride the bike sitting down. So, I just started pedaling, standing up, and I wiped out a couple of times <laughs> and luckily got through that scene because most of the bike riding obviously was stunt kids. Yeah. Did you show up to watch any of that too? Or? No. A lot of the stunt work I think uh, may have been second unit. Mm. I don't know because there was so much of it. And you but, were doing your schoolwork probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were trying to squeeze in a, a lot of that. And then the stunt folks had to also squeeze in their schoolwork. Oh, because they, they were minors as well? Yeah, all minors. Were these like BMX champions of the they late went, 70s and 80s? Yeah, they, I don't know how well known or how you know uh, great. You know, I mean, obviously they were great bike riders because yeah. you can see that. But apparently they went to a bike park and um, sort of obviously look for kids that rode very well, but were also looking for ones that sort of physically matched up with us. Yeah, and they do. And it's funny, too, because you all have these – each of you has a unique 
like accoutrement or like fashion accessories. So you've right. got this English cap. C. Thomas Howells has like a sinister balaclava, like a right. cat burglar. <laughs> right. And then Greg has those giant headphones. Right. I mean, they're almost bigger than his head. Right. And it's perfect for disguising like stunt doubles. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought of that. It was uh, the that may have been the method uh, to the wardrobe. Um, oh, that because makes I had the wraparound glasses, right, the cap. Yeah. So maybe they were going to try to obscure us a little bit so with all those stunts we wouldn't be so identifiable. Yeah. And the rest were close-ups. I mean, I don't remember many. There were a couple of heavy bike riding scenes with all of us um, trying to get away from the men in the black suits and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But the rest of them were close-ups, and a lot of them were done at um, ILM up north. Oh, so you had to do a second stage where you'd go up north and do with the blue screen stuff? Yes. And what they did is they just did each one of us in the studio, and there were these um, trees that were on rolling tracks. Uh. So they would pull those backwards so that it looked like we were going forwards, and then there was... uh, uh, green screen and to you know put the moon and the clouds and the sky in, but again, that's so uh, not crude, but it's 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 really so so. Um, I don't know what the word. Well, it's is. like simple by today's standards. Yeah, right? by yeah. The, by today's standards, it's extremely different. Yeah, because they wouldn't have bothered with any of that nowadays. I know everything would just be CG. But do you think mm-hmm. that that helped at least a little contribute to your imagination? Because you're the person that's got to sell that. Yeah. These days, if there's just a blue void and a ping pong ball, that's got to be even more difficult. Yeah, it, it was, and it was like you said, it was an advantage for us um, in that we could perform mm-hmm. our close-ups and you know, um, you know, emote um, rather than just having a doll in the sky. And even the doll is is um, pretty simple, pretty old school. Because they wouldn't bother with that nowadays. (laughs) And they built these intricate dolls of each of us and had them moving and attached to a machine that would make us move as naturally as possible. I wonder where those are today. There's a picture that I have. I'll try and send it to you. Oh, please. I will. Of me looking at my doll. Um, Hashtag hello, Dolly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I posted it once. Did you? One time, uh, yeah, I posted it. I would it. love to get a picture of you looking at the doll and then Carol Channing looking the other way yes, back at Yes, exactly. It. <laughs> it was, and a lot of fans send me pictures that they find. Oh, they'll, wow. They'll email me on Facebook or um, send, me, uh, send me pictures that I had never seen. Post them you uh-huh. know, on my page or on their page yeah. and tag me. Um, so there were lots... And lots of pictures that I had never seen. And that was one of them, me examining my doll. Um, but, yeah, somebody said that those should be in the Smithsonian. They should, yeah. I mean, uh, it, I, I'm, I don't disagree. Yeah. I mean, it's a piece of film history. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and uh, talk about more E.T. and uh, some of the other work you've done. So how was it working with the other uh, three older guys, your buddies on the set? Um, It was great, really. Um, My stepbrother had worked with Casey Martell in the original Amityville Horror. Oh, yeah. So I knew of him. I don't remember if I had met him perhaps at one point or not. Um, But Tom Howell, I didn't know. And this was his first film, I believe. It was, yes. It was interesting. They had us all um, come to uh, Harrison Ford's house to see how we all sort of interacted. Because Melissa Matheson was married to him at the time? Yes. That's, oh. that's I believe, why How was they that chose. experience? What, what it was, was his interesting. house like? Well, it was interesting because he started out as a carpenter yeah. for um, Coppola. So it was interesting. There was a lot of tables like this in front of a sort of bulky hand done um 
So that was interesting. And he was walking around with her and uh, they were just sort of observing how we got along with each other. Were you a fan of Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark at the time? And the, was it lost on you, the fact that basically Han Solo's just, you're in his house and he's walking around? I think, you know, you could uh, correct me on this one, but I don't know the sequence of release E.T. was actually conceived on the set of Raiders. That makes it sound very sexual. But uh, <laughs> Melissa Matheson had come to visit and Spielberg – and this is funny because this is based on an interview of my last episode from someone working on Raiders that said that she had come to set and Spielberg kind of like got uh, Harrison Ford to help convince her to do E.T. Yeah, I, I, I do remember that it was very close together. So I yeah. don't even know if I had seen Raiders, oh, gotcha. even by the time I had auditioned. Well, it would have been about a year that it that yeah. it had been out. Um, but I don't recall seeing that. Uh, what stuck in my mind, um, as far as uh, Stephen goes, was Jaws mm. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Gotcha. Definitely both of those were... Very memorable. I don't go in the ocean anymore. <laughs> Still, even to this day? Uh, well, I don't give myself a lot of opportunity okay. to go in the ocean. And do you go into space much? No. Okay. No, I don't go into space much. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys were all brought to this house to kind of just check out your chemistry and get to yeah, – Yeah. Yeah. We, they brought us over and um, it was very relaxed, got to meet everybody and just – sort of, as I recall, sort of told us to just sort of make up a Dungeons and Dragons type of game and just improvise it. I believe there were some actually some other kids there that were under consideration. Oh. And um, not many, but I think there were a few just to see, you know, who worked well with who. It ended up, you know, being the four of us. Had you had much Dungeons and Dragons experience? Um, no, no, I had. Ne I God, had I even heard of the game by then? <laughs> I think yes. I think I had. It wasn't a very punk no. game at the time. No, no, no. I, w I wasn't playing it. That's for sure. And I was. I certainly wasn't playing a lot of it to be a dungeon master <laughs> or what did you say? Ga game, uh, game master. Game yeah. master. Yes. Game master. Sinna Supremus. Sinna Supremus. Um, but, uh, the game, uh, we were not allowed to use, um, I, which I found interesting yeah. that they would, uh, and M&Ms also was reticent to, to have us use. That's right. Yeah. And so yet that's Star Wars is up. all over the place probably because of Lucas and Spielberg's and the cross marketing of that film is unbelievable. I know. I know it's all inbred cuz ET ended up being in a Star Wars film later on way back in the background too in one of those prequels. Really? Yeah. They're all <laughs> inbred. Yeah, I just I think it all ended for me with the Star Wars makeup. Uh, Maybelline just came out with a line of Star Wars makeup. I so. haven't even heard of this just now. I mean, I love the film and yeah, I love me the trilogy too, the, and I love the story. The merchandising is gone. But the, yeah, I don't think Lucas would have opted for Maybelline Star Wars makeup. So it's just makeup for women inspired by it's, Star Wars characters? It's, it's apparently, and I hope we don't get in trouble. No, we're, we're fine. talking Maybelline. <laughs> Um, They're a huge sponsor it's, of this of course, show. the last thing I expected to talk about. <laughs> Me too, but I love it. But yeah, it's apparently it's do you choose the dark side or do you oh, choose Oh, wait, the I have side? seen this. Where did I see this? I wonder if it was like I was in um, – I want to say I was in a makeup store myself for Christmas shopping or something. I don't know where and I saw, saw it. it. Yeah. Yeah, one <laughs> one uh, is all done up with, you know, very, very, very dark, heavy evening makeup, and the other one is very light. Oh, man. Um, and so it says something like, do you choose the dark side or the light side? I guess it depends on what you're doing that night. I guess so. Jeez. Buy the whole package. <laughs> so how was it working with Henry Thomas? He seems incredible. I've watched online his... Um, his audition is on YouTube where he's improvising with the casting director and is just weeping. And, um, what was the process like with him? Um, 
I would love to have seen some of those some of those sessions in in uh, in the uh, early um, process of casting the film um, because uh, you know now they have released the the uh, clips of mm-hmm. his audition which were very very moving. Um, there was uh, there was uh, sort of an alternate ending, so I got to see a lot of his work in that scene um, up close, you know, and personal. And it what was, was the alternate very, ending. Um, it was just a, it was just a, sort of a tag on to the after the ship leaves. It was originally. Um, uh, us regrouped in Elliot's room and Elliot has sort of like this soliloquy that he, that he um, sort of says to ET through the skylight in his bedroom. Um, So that was the, the, I don't want to say the one opportunity, but that was the most memorable opportunity that I got to see him work in. He's just phenomenal. I mean, at the time, I'm sure he's still a wonderful actor, but at the time, it was just phenomenal. Huh. And he hadn't done very much. Yeah. He had, I think, had done two movies. Right, Raggedy Man. I think was his other Raggedy Man. Possibly another, or maybe not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And how about Spielberg in general? It seems like he works very well with children and. Yeah, that's um, that's one thing that I do mention um, quite frequently when I get asked. Um, he just was like one of the kids. I know. <laughs> I know it sounds sort of cliche, but he was just like the kids. He was as playful and um, you know endearing and um, interested in in us and our our lives and, uh, you know, what we enjoy to do and all that. He was not, I've worked with a lot of directors and, um, a lot of them are not that connected with the cast as connected, I should say, with the cast as, as Steven was. Well, it kind of shows on the screen, I think, you know? Yes, it absolutely does. I don't think he could have gotten that film made the way it was, and have um, achieved the performances that he did out of the actors had it not been this special sort of playful connection that he had with us. And finally, I'm sure you're aware of the controversy where they replaced the the government guy's guns with walkie-talkies. Yes. Where do you fall on that? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I... I'm not crazy about the idea. I, I prefer the original. I yeah. mean, I'm not, you know, certainly not a gun fanatic or anything. <laughs> yeah, it's not a pro gun. No, no, it's, it's not. A, yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not political. Um, <laughs> but it's. Uh, I don't know. I just. I, I, I like his original vision, and it also gave uh, the uh, the urgency that right. we had to to get away. Um, I don't know that, you know, we, any of us, any of our characters thought that we were going to get shot, right. <laughs> but um, it certainly was a reason to fly away. That's Yeah. And Spielberg himself is basically recanted on this. I think he wants it back the original way. Oh, really? Yeah, I think he realized it was a mistake. And I have to believe it was probably because he saw Lucas tinker with his film so much. In Star Wars, that he's and he probably sees the reaction is so negative to that. I think he's smart enough to. That's my that's my thinking. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because I mean, what are they going to do? Th- do throw the walkie talkies at us? You know, it's, <laughs> say the, bad words. The, into them. Yeah, mean, say, yes. mean things. Be yeah. mean and throw walkie talkies. <laughs> you know, it just loses some of the urgency. Uh, all right, I'm going to do a new segment on this show that I'm going to call Role Association, where I'm just going to name some things you've been in. And if you have anything you want to say about them, you can. You can say pass. You can say whatever you want. Oh. But if anything comes to mind, you just tell us. Interesting. Because right. you've got some wonderful credits here. Uh, real genius. Originally, there was a scene where some somebody's science fair volcano went uh, awry and exploded. And, and that was cut out of the film. And then they had me uh, play... Um, 
William Atherton's biggest fan. So I sort of stalk him when he first walks into it's the, the science fair. the only time that credit has ever existed, I think. Yes, yeah. yes. Because I, your role is boy at science fair, correct? Yes, yeah. exactly. It should have been autograph hound at science fair, <laughs> but boy at science fair sounds okay. good enough. Spinal Tap. You are credited as David's punk rocker son. Yes, I think uh, – David St. Hubbins, I think is yeah, the name Jordan of the Yeah, you're Jordan St. Hubbins, right? Jordan, yeah. David's, yeah. That um, was a whole sequence that is in the special features but uh, is not in the original film. And it, uh, the, special feature, the special features, I should say, I think were released with the anniversary edition. Yeah, I think so, yeah. If, if I'm not mistaken. So the whole scene of meeting up with me and interacting with me and talking about my mother and the divorce and then meeting the whole band is in the special feature section. And had you done much improv before? I'm assuming a lot of that was improv. It was all improv. I mean, of course, I wasn't on the set for the rest of it, but in our scenes, it was all improvisation. And turned out great. Rob Reiner was very happy with how it turned out and... Um, Love the work and the conversation that went on between between the long-lost father and his son. <laughs> okay, this one is for my friend Jay, who's a huge fan of the show Little House on the Prairie. I played um, Melissa Gilbert's first love interest. Oh. All right. Yeah. Um, that's, that's no small role. That's pretty significant. To, it know, is. The main yeah. character's first it love is. interest. Yeah, she had a crush. Um, on my character, Jason, and it wasn't reciprocated. So she got really mean and really upset. And then, of course, in the end, you know, we reunite and have a dance. It's called Dance With Me. Okay. And the great thing is I got to work with Ray Bolger. Oh, wow. Uh, who was the scarecrow yeah. in Wizard of Oz, and Eileen Heckert, who was a fairly well-known old actress. Um who taught me to waltz, actually, really? yeah, because ah. we had to waltz in, in the last scene. But, yeah, it was, her first, it was her first crush, her first little boyfriend scenario, so. All right, now this one's for me because I used to watch this show when I was a kid. It's your first role. Your, your credit is boy, and it's the TV series Emergency. Emergency. Yes. I used to watch this in the afternoons when it was syndicated. And, Did you yeah, really? Yeah. Wow, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who remembers. I know, emergency. I know, because yeah, I just remember the, especially the opening titles and the the voiceover, the Rampart Tuna, right, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Right, with the exclamation. Yes, point that's right. Emergency. <laughs> it wasn't just emergency; it was <laughs> they, emergency exclamation point. In <laughs> case you're wondering why the show itself is slow paced, don't worry, we've got it in the title. It's exciting. We'll tell it to you. <laughs> that one. Um, uh, a kid got bitten by a dog, and I'm the tattletale that uh, pointed out, told on the kid, pointed out what happened, and said that he was aggravating the dog, and that's why he got bitten. <laughs> All right, I'll look for it when I get the DVD yeah, box. Good sets. luck. <laughs> if you blink, you'll miss me. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Sean Fry, for that interview. And indeed, you can see the photo that he's talking about of himself looking at the little model on this episode's web page. And now on to a new segment where I get a little crabby in something called I Was There, a Tay Too. And I tell you that because I don't even know if you can understand it on this musical bumper. I'm just running out of puns, and I don't know what I'm doing. I was there, a Tay Too. There are three things that I see come up in films that always bother me because they are nothing like real life. And then when I was watching E.T., I noticed that it got two of them, I think, pretty right. One of them wasn't even in the film. But then it made me sort of think, like, what are the other things that happen in movies that never happen in real life that are everyday things that drive me crazy? And I was able to come up with ten. And not just a neat ten because it fits a top ten. There were actually ten. That doesn't happen except in movies. Say, wait a minute. So here's my top ten list of little annoying things that happen in movies that never happen in real life that we either let slide or people like myself don't. I do, but I also make a podcast, so it's my role in life to be minutia cop for your benefit. 
that's a burden that I bear every day for you. I can't watch a movie now without looking at a person going, would they work for this podcast? And now I'm seeing little things between the lines, and it's uh, become a real problem, I guess. Anyway, let's get started before I begin a full therapy session. Number 10, and I'm going to let this one have a little slack because it's a legal issue, the 555 phone number. However, I've seen some movies not use a 555 phone number. I don't know how they get away with that. I don't even want to know how they get away with that. I just know, why can't they all get away with that? Clearly, if you don't use a 555 number, some guy's going to call it, and it's going to be someone's number, and they're going to be bothered by it, and then they're going to sue a movie studio. But unless they buy the phone number, which is what I think certain studios do. There, I figured it out. No need to email me the truth. Number nine, it's another one that I can give a little slack, computer screens. They always have to dub computer screens. Computer screens are almost never the actual thing on display. They dub them in in post-production. There's a good reason for this. The um, refresh rate or whatever it is, is going at a different rate than the frame rate of the film or the digital camera. And so it doesn't sync up well. And you start to see a uh, like horizontal line rise up from the bottom to the top and it would drive you crazy. So again, that's understandable. But I say take pains to make it look real. <laughs> Number eight. Wrapped presents that open as boxes. I've known one person in my life that wraps gifts as boxes that you can just lift the lid off of easily, and that person was crazy. So it doesn't happen. It's only there to speed time along. So again, I get that there's a function. These last ones, they're low on the list because there is a utilitarian function to some of these. Number seven, grocery bags that always have celery sticking out of the top. I don't think I've ever brought home groceries with celery sticking out of the top. I know people buy celery, but it just looks aesthetically pleasing. So I can let this one slide a little bit too. I don't think I've ever even bought celery. So you know what? Actually, this one's all right. Number six, no liquid in drinking cups. This one, it drives me crazy because it's easy enough to do. You can put water in a coffee cup. You can just tell by the physics, the way that some people lift them up, they come right off the desk and right to their mouths with no resistance or no weight or no gravity. This one drives me crazy because it's so easily fixed. Christ almighty. Okay. I'd like to apologize. I got a little charged. But this issue is important. Number five. This is another big one. Almost anybody that takes a pill in a movie or a television show doesn't use water. Why don't they use water? Is it because it always has to happen on the go? Um, apparently there's no water in the cups anyway, so it's a moot point. Take your pills with water, people, and make it real water. Number four, not saying goodbye on the phone. People hang up in movies on the phone without saying goodbye. Nobody does that in real life except for crazy people that wrap gifts as an opening box. It doesn't happen. You're a sociopath. You're a mean person if you don't say goodbye. It's not like you're adhering to some arcane tradition. It's it's a polite thing to do. I will say goodbye when this segment is over and there's not even a phone call. <sighs> Number three, and this is a trio. This was the original three that I was talking about that always get me. It's three separate things that are clearly made by production designers because they have an element of craft or art to them, but they're being used by characters that don't necessarily possess those skills. The first of which is picket signs. Whenever people are protesting, they have these professionally made signs or painted signs that just doesn't happen. If you go look at a real picket line, most people are not artists. Most people are horrible artists, and it looks like the scribblings of madmen. And so I would love to see that reflected. I did, since I've been paying attention to this, notice that in the film Contact, when they go out to the desert and there are all these people waiting for the aliens, a lot of the signs they have made for that film look like they were made by insane people, and it feels very authentic. But I think people that would drive out to the desert to wait for an alien would probably... I think it just... that may have That may have been what they were representing more there. I don't know. Number two, along the same lines, children's drawings. 
you never almost ever see drawings that look like they were actually done by kids. They always have a feel that an adult did it and dumbed it down, but still couldn't let go of their ego enough to make it look like a kid's drawing. I think there are a couple films where they actually had kids do the drawings, and those are the ones that feel the most authentic. Along this same line and on this same number, kids' rooms, they never look like a kid lives in them. Kids' clothes, they're always wearing these primary colors like an orange perfect t-shirt with a unassuming plaid button-up over that with a ball cap twisted to the side. And though it has the, the vague representation of a kid, something is very uncanny valley about it. You know what? As a matter of fact, just kids in general in the movies are hard to get right. And finally, Halloween costumes. They almost always look designed by a costume designer. When you see a Halloween or a masquerade party in a movie, it looks like the office Halloween party for people that worked at a costume studio or something like that. Everybody's in a, a perfect Roman centurion costume or a, a 17th century dandy or something like that. And that's just not the way it happens, which brings us to today's film, E.T., where I think they get the costumes very right. I think they get the kids' room very right, the kids' toys very right. If you happen to watch this movie or can remember it, when Elliot and E.T. and his siblings go out for Halloween, the costumes that the kids are wearing around the neighborhood are very realistic. They reminded me so much of what I would see when I was a kid. In fact, Elliot's alone and he's the hunchback of Notre Dame, but he's just wearing a hoodie and some makeup and their costumes just look like things they threw together with what they had at the house, which is kind of what I remember doing, except for this one time that my stepdad and I had built the perfect Jawa costume down to the light-up electronic eyes, and I was so excited. I had the robe, I had the face cover. It, it looked exactly like a Jawa, and I played with it so much that the bulbs burnt out, and I had to go as a hobo that night. It went from the best costume to the worst costume ever. Also, without uh, saying how long ago this was, this was in a time when hardware stores closed at 5 p.m. and there was no Home Depot Superstore, so I literally couldn't go get a replacement bulb for this sort of thing, and I was stuck going as a goddamn hobo. This is a therapy session because I just got real sad. I'm back. But also in E.T., some of the people walking around the neighborhood, like there's a Yoda, but the Yoda, rather than wearing the perfect Jedi robe, has like <laughs> just like a burlap sack monk's robe, even a rope tied around the waist. So it, it just looks vaguely familiar, which is what you would see in a neighborhood. And then there's also some like it's a doctor death guy. He's like a doctor with a death face, but he's holding a little dog with a clown hat on it. And it's so abstract and artistic, but not in the way where it looks designed. It looks like something you might actually see. And I think that's one of the things I've always loved about E.T. was Elliot's room feels, it felt like my room. It was messy, but there were things everywhere, things he was working on, projects, Star Wars toys, all that sort of stuff. It felt very authentic. So I thought this might be the best film to lay out these very important parameters for making things real in cinema today. Hi, my name's the Minutia Cop, and I'm protecting you. Exhibiting a trait I abhor in others. I'm out there every day, inside, watching movies, protecting you. And now, I would like to end by saying goodbye. I was there at day two. Before this episode ends, there's something very important to tell you about E.T. It has three really interesting songs unofficially attached to it. One of them was originally going to be an official song for the film by James Taylor called Song for You Far Away. It was ultimately not used in the movie, but it was eventually recorded in 1985 for release on the That's Why I'm Here album. Here's just a taste. This is a song. And then Michael Jackson went and wrote his own E.T. song called Someone in the Dark, a little creepy in hindsight, and E.T. has a little vocal interlude in that one. <laughs> it's really worth listening to all three of these in full. You can find the YouTube links on this episode's webpage, but let's take a little taste of that. My friend, my someone in the dark was you. And finally, and for my money, 
the hands-down best, the one you're probably familiar with, Turn On Your Heart Light by Neil Diamond. Turn on your heart light Let it shine wherever you go Let it make a happy glow For all the world to see The song was inspired by the film, but there's no mention of it made in the movie or the lyrics. They're just close enough to not be sued. The songwriters paid the studio a nominal sum for use of the ideas from the movie. And speaking of my Jawa costume from the last segment, my dad and I always had this bond because we loved this movie, and he would say, hey, turn on your heart light. And I kept carrying my light-up Jawa eyes with me under my shirt waiting for him to say it so when he said that I could surprise him and light it up. But again, my batteries died and I never got it fixed. So I missed out on a good Halloween costume and a nice sentimental rite of passage that every son wants from a father where he hides a bunch of Jawa eyes under his shirt and lights up his chest. Well, it's the night before this podcast comes out, and I'm recording this little bit. I couldn't be more exhausted, and I'm just going to leave it there by saying that I'm done. Leave a review for this on iTunes. Send me an email if you know someone to do this at gmail.com. And follow me on Letterboxd and Twitter and Instagram at MacOrley. Ah, man, what a week. Tired. Love you. Turn on your heart light now. Turn on your Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered.